This is a Stand Up New York Labs production, providing you podcasts since 2013. This is episode 126 with James Altucher. Welcome to Growth Mindset University. My name is Jordan Paris, 21-year-old author and host of this show. And with this show, you and I will embark on a journey to learn the things that we should have learned in school but did not so that we may take control of our lives while fulfilling our visions of success. Each episode will feature a brand new lesson, and now it's time for today's lesson. So put your thinking cap on, because school is now in session. Thank you so much for joining me, your host, Jordan Paris, on the show today. We have a very special episode in store, it is with James Altucher. James is a hero of mine, someone that I have been following for half a decade now, listening to his podcast, reading all of his work. And I never thought that one day I would do an interview in front of a live audience in New York City with him. And so that's what that is today. We had a live audience of about 20 people. I got to shake the hands of listeners, which was so fulfilling, you have no idea. And so, of course, we got this one on camera today. The production quality is pretty high. You can find it at jordanparis.com slash altoucher or slash EP126, whichever one you choose. Now, before we get into it today, three things. One, you have to make sure that you've already subscribed to Growth Mindset University, wherever you are listening to this so that you don't miss interviews like this in the future so that you can learn how to succeed in this progressive new age of business and life that we find ourselves in with in-depth interviews of the aforementioned James Altucher, who you'll be meeting today, Dan Locke, Mark Manson, Naveen Jain, so many others that we bring here to learn from. Secondly, if you enjoy this episode today, please consider giving back with an honest rating on Apple Podcasts. It takes all of 20 seconds. Very simple thing to do. I would be eternally grateful if you did that. Third, if you want to start a podcast just like this or any other podcast, or if you want to take your current podcast to the next level, I've got you taken care of. You can get my free resource, Podcast University, at jordanparis.com slash PU. It solves for all of the unknown variables of podcasting. All of the things that stress people out and overwhelm people and, and they end up quitting or not even starting their podcast. I solve for those variables. These are all the things that I wish I knew when I was starting my podcast in April of 2018. And I'm giving it to you for free. Again, jordanparis.com slash PU for free access to Podcast University. My friends, so much time, money, and energy went into the making of this podcast, and I am so incredibly proud of it, and now we finally have it out. There was some delays, and here it is. I don't even want to delay it anymore, so without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with the great and powerful James Altucher.
My guest today made $15 million after selling his business and lost it all in a few short months. He made another $10 Four million. Four times over. Four times over. Oh, wow. I was going to say you made another $10 million but lost it all again, but it happened a couple, two more times. He started 20 business, businesses, 17 of them failed. He's been a hedge fund manager, a venture capitalist. He's written 21 books, including Choose Yourself right here, which sold over 1 million copies and was self-published. He's written thousands of articles, including many for Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Business Insider, and scores more. He's a board member for several companies. He claims to have single-handedly saved the U.S. stock market in 2009. He thinks college is a waste of time, as do I. I think this is going to be common knowledge in, uh, in less than a decade. And he believes buying a home is financial suicide. We're going to talk about all of that today. And for good measure, he's a chess master and a stand-up comic. Please welcome the one and only James Altucher for the first live edition of Growth Mindset University. Give it up. Well, Jordan, uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm really honored. I know you have a lot of people you could choose from to have as guests on this podcast. Can I ask you a question? Go, go ahead. So you were, you, you know, uh, interned and studied with this kind of celebrity trainer and worked with him. Did you meet a lot of the people he was, uh, he, he was training? I met a few, nothing, nothing crazy. None of like, you know, his clients are uh, Fiji, you know, like Fiji water, right? Um, so he goes to their house all the time. I, did, I was not, I did not get to go. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I got to meet a lot of quality individuals. What, what do you think he thought distinguished some of these successful people that he was training from other people he was training? Like, was there an extra discipline or were they extra lazy because they were you know already were successful and and maybe felt like they could in some ways mentally splurge that success by not trying as hard anymore or was there were there any qualities that made um you know his celebrities that he was training different that's a great question i am not 100 percent sure that's they have a, a growth mindset come on <laughs> i bet i bet they did but i mean something i think about all the time is uh you know you have to have the courage to say, I don't know sometimes. Uh, and I'm not afraid to say it. I, I truthfully do not know the answer. All right, that's fair enough. <laughs> you know, a lot of times, you know, going on like, sometimes, you know, television networks, you see people talking, like it's a panel of people talking about, oh, the, the Trump trade war or taxes or the college admission scandal. And they have a bunch of pundits. You're really not allowed to say, I don't know on TV. They will penalize you. They won't invite you back if you say, I don't know. Really? Yeah. And Did you ever do it? Uh, oh, yeah, all the time. And then I wouldn't get invited back for a while. And then, But, but TV's memory is, is fast, so they, they forget. You were on TV a lot. Yeah. Yeah. For better or for worse. Because for a lot of times those TV segments, they're like three minutes. And as soon as you feel like, oh, we're starting to make some sense here, is the segment's over. And now our next guest is going to talk about these extra large oranges being found in Brazil or whatever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, I was, uh, we, had, we had Dan Locke on the show and I watched his segment on Fox and it was like two minutes and 45 seconds. And, and uh, you know, Dan said, you probably don't even, at two minutes, 35 seconds, you probably don't even like me anymore by now after saying that or something like that. He's like, what? He's like, well, you've only got, uh, the host was like, we've only got 10 seconds left. And I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> sometimes, so quick. 
Sometimes you're you can't, on. You can't get the truth out, and like you can't get everything out in what, two minutes and forty five seconds. What do you mean truth? Like, like what's that? What's that? I'm just kidding. I, but like what's a, that? Wrong word. Wrong word. But like you can't tell the full story. Right, but I but I'm interested in the word truth because you can't. That word has no meaning. Like for instance, uh, you have something in your ear, and they'll say, "Okay," they'll whisper to you, "Okay, James, jump in now and like argue." And really? uh, yeah, that happens in every news show. Hmm. Interesting. So another time, I was on one show. Uh, I'll even say the name, uh, the John Stossel show. I think it was on Fox then or ABC. I forget. And before they started the segment. Um, this woman came out of nowhere. Um, we're all mic'd up. We're all ready. And she gave me a brush and told me to go to the bathroom and brush my hair <laughs> before going on the John Stossel show. That's the truth. You know uh, that's how important the truth is. You know what I was thinking about? You've had a, a similar hairstyle for quite some time. What would happen if he just shaved it all off? I think I would be even uglier than I already am. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> like, I would stick out even worse. Yeah, it's... I. I I dig it. Like I would if you shaved it off. Like this is this is so you. Like I, it's it's just iconic. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I it's people just. I don't know. I could never. I, it's always a mess. So it's just I just grew it out longer and it stayed even worse. So, so you single handedly saved the U.S. stock market in two thousand nine, supposedly in your book. Tell me about that. What's the story there? Well, I was living on. Um, the corner of Broad Street and Wall Street. So I don't know if you know that corner. On one side of the corner was my building. On another side of the corner is the New York Stock Exchange. And across the street from both of us was, from the New York Stock Exchange in my building, was the building where George Washington got inaugurated president. And there's a statue of George Washington. So I would walk out of my house each morning and I just felt like, oh, this is this is history. It's like, what a historic place. My kids would even make fun of me. Like we'd walk out of the building together and and they would like imitate me saying, it's, an, it's a, such a historic place and like uh, uh, making fun of me. But um, uh, around, you know, the time of the financial crisis and in 2009, the stock market was just, it was just so down, you know, and, and not even like, it didn't even make sense anymore for a lot of reasons, but you know we don't have to go into those. But just and then every, I noticed everybody walking into the New York Stock Exchange, they were always like looking at the ground. They were always depressed. You know, it was it was winter still, and they were sad. And the, the market was like at at I don't know the, the worst, you know, the worst market fall since the Great Depression. And so one time. I went out and I bought like three bags of chocolates, like the kind of chocolates you hand out on Halloween. And chocolate triggers oxytocin right. in the brain and it triggers all these neurochemicals that not only make you happy, but encourage uh, a little bit more risk-taking. So I just stood outside of the New York Stock Exchange one morning and I handed out chocolates. I would go up to people who were walking in and again, they were they were looking at the ground, they were depressed and everybody, 100% of the people would look up first confused. Like, what are you, why are you in my space? And then I would just be offering like, here's free chocolate. And you know, you know that advice, don't take candy from strangers. All of them <laughs> took candy from a stranger and um, they took it and they're like, they smile and they like say thanks and they would unwrap it and be like Hershey's Kisses and they would eat the chocolate. That was March 9th uh, 2009. It was the exact bottom of the market, in, in since then. 
So I don't know. I have to take some credit. Like that was the bottom <laughs> of the market. I basically got everybody who was the major traders of the market to be happier and more encouraged to take risks. So it's not lying if it's true. So, uh, you know, it's not, or it's not bragging if it's true. I, I did it. It sounds like you, you could argue, you know, I mean, as people laugh, but I, I buy it. I totally buy that. This is like the little things. And I do believe it made a difference. Yeah, because at that time, and, and now I'll get a little more wonky about it. At that time, there's no reason for the market to have been down that much then. The housing crisis was over. All the banks had been bailed out. So even if you thought that was bad or not, at least right then, all the banks had a lot of money. And, you know, there was like there was like bank stocks that were giving dividends of like 15 or 16%. So it was ridiculous. Apple was trading for five times earnings. Like it was just kind of ridiculous. I remember there was one day where um, swine, the swine flu was in the news. Like, oh no, there was like one outbreak of swine flu. And so there was a stock with the symbol HOGS which was down 20% that day. It had nothing to do with swine flu. Yeah, maybe they sold as part of their product pork, but it had nothing to do with, you wouldn't get swine flu from eating their bacon. And uh, it's just, everybody was irrational in the market. Like I almost wish the market was like that again, because you sort of, you know, you realize how how deeply fear of, creates opportunities in the market. So of course, Hogs was a great buy that day and the market and bank stocks were a great buy on March 9th, but they also could have been a great buy on March 10th. It just so happens on that day that I handed out chocolates just randomly, that was the the bottom of the the market forever. Hmm. So you I mean, we talk about a low in the market, you've had many lows. You talk about, you know, four times you kind of lost the money and made it back. There's a low point, I believe, in the 90s that you write about, <clears throat> that you write about and choose yourself. You try to check into a homeless shelter to find, but to find love, but they yes. didn't let you. <laughs> yes, tell me, tell me. So I was um, the reasoning. I was working. I was a, uh, a a software guy back then. This is like a long time ago. This is 19, 1991, uh, summer of nineteen ninety one, and so it was a really long time ago. I had just gotten thrown out of school. And uh, I was working for the summer for this place. And the the job was fun. It was basically taking English documents and trend and, and, and figure taking, taking news articles and figuring out what the news articles were, were about and categorizing them. So technology like that later became useful in search engines, but in the, in the first search engines that were created. And, uh, but I would sit out at lunchtime every day and I'd see all these women going in and out of this one building. And I was single at the time and very insecure and unconfident in myself, similar to now. And um, I, I was wondering, what's that building? And it was a homeless shelter. So I figured, oh, this is great. I'll be the, uh, this is definitely a place to, this is like, this was like the Tinder of 1991 for me. <laughs> and so I w- went to meet, I remember his name, Bruce was the guy running the homeless shelter. And I said, can I move in here? I'll be like a good influence on the homeless people here. I could maybe teach courses on something. And I really thought like this was going to be some kind of like love story. I'd meet some, you know, desperate homeless woman and she'd fall in love with me and life would be great after that. And so he called, 
he's like, that's a really odd request. Like, are you homeless? And I'm like, no, 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 but I want to live close to my work. I work right across the street. So he called my boss. My boss calls later calls me into his office and says, do you want to live in the homeless shelter across the street? And I said, yeah. And um, he said, well, how do you know you're going to be continuing working here? And I'm like, well, do you have something to tell me? And he said, yeah, well, you know, you're not going to be continuing to work here after next week. It's, you know, your thing is over and we're not going to re- hire you and uh uh and so he told the homeless shelter not to basically told the homeless shelter i was crazy not to not and and don't let me live there and then he fired me (laughs) so and 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 i never met any women from the homeless shelter unfortunately (laughs) or maybe fortunately i don't know yeah what was uh so you talk about you know a couple of your downfalls of very well documented. You know, you made the 15, lost it, as I mentioned in the intro, made the 10 and lost it. What were the two other ones? I, I, I'm not actually familiar with those ones. Yeah, I mean, one time, one time I got a letter. This was in 2004. Uh, I had just made a bunch of money. I sold uh, or helped sell a mental health facility company that I was uh, involved with. Uh, not as a member, but not as a, uh, what do you call it? Not as a patient, <laughs> yeah. but as an owner. And um, uh, I had made some money. And then suddenly I got this letter from the IRS and they said, you didn't file taxes. You, you didn't file your taxes last year for the 17th year in a row. And during that time I had you know, built and sold companies and, I, you know, but I was, you know, not the, the amount that I would have owed, like I thought in my head was so much more, like probably 20 times more than I actually had in the bank. And so I was just scared to death. I remember uh, uh, that night I was Googling like every case ever with the IRS and I thought, man, I'm, I'm definitely going to jail. And... Uh, and then I started figuring out, I started Googling like, well, maybe I should kill myself because I'm going to go broke again. And I just can't, I just can't bear the pain of that again. And, or I can't bear the pain of, of going to jail. And, but I didn't want to kill myself and hurt myself. So, cause like you could kill yourself in painless ways, but most people, if, if I were to say like, like how, if you were to try to kill yourself, how would you do it? Gosh, I don't, I'm such a dork. I don't even know how. Like, just like, ah. That's a great question. Uh, I, don't, I, would, I wouldn't be able to figure out how to hang myself for the life of me. Well, first of all, uh, hanging yourself would be the worst idea oh. because you would just like hang there either and you'd break your neck and just be sort of hanging there until you die or you would suffocate for a few minutes until you die. So both ways are very painful. Yeah, I think what I, what I would do, I, this so, sounds weird to talk about, but um, I, I, it, I, I don't even know how to get my hands on a gun, but I, would, I guess I'd shoot myself, yeah. Yeah, uh, but you you did it this way. You you, oh. you you sort of described doing it this way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you do it that way, you're very likely to um, just blow out one of your eyes and maybe go deaf. Oh. And so it wouldn't be pleasant. And no. uh, uh, so it was a lot of research. And ultimately, I couldn't really figure out a, a good, safe way to kill yourself. It's a very uh, ugly business. So I didn't do that. And uh, I went to the IRS and basically worked out a deal with them and gave them all my money and was broke again. 
So now I now I stay on top of it. Now they don't let. Now they write me a letter like on April fifteenth. Did you? We we need to hear from you. Like now yeah. I'm on their radar. Well, now you stay on top of it. I was really wondering. I mean, because you've been up and down so many times. Who's to say you're not going to be down again? Like, do you anticipate being down again? If not, like, are you taking precautions? Like, no, you- I I don't. So there's three skills. So I feel now we're getting we're getting into it. So there's three skills to uh to about money. There's making it, there's keeping it, and there's growing it. And they're completely different skills if you think about it. Like, you know, making it involves all the sorts of things you read about in every business self-help book or you read about online, like here are some strategies to use, do this, do this. Keeping it is totally a different skill. Here's, you know, how you should allocate your money. Here's how you protect it. And here's what you should spend on. Here's how you should protect yourself. And then growing it, that's a whole other thing uh, where it's like, okay, here's how you properly invest when you have a a large amount of money and so on. That's a completely different skill. So I was good at the making it. I wasn't good yet at the keeping it, growing it. And I say, yeah, because I've gone broke enough times that I was sort of able to look back and see each time what mistakes I made to go broke. And it was very clear to me what mistakes I made to go broke. Uh, on a personal level, yeah, was- I would sort of like think, to, after I made money each time, I would sort of think to myself, phew, that's it. That was that whole era of my life where I grew up poor. I was poor. I paid for everything. I was poor all along. And now I'm done with all the hard work of being a human. I could just start living large, living expensive, doing whatever I wanted and enjoy myself. So it was like, you know, you go to the gym every day for a year or a couple of years and you're like, oh, I'm fit for life. Yeah. That's not the case. Right. Well, you get flabby again. (laughs) Right. Your, your, your muscles will atrophy pretty quickly. Right. Like, like if you, let's say you built, let's say, I'm actually curious about this. If let's say you have an, an accident and you're in a hospital bed, uh, because of the accident and they're not letting you walk, how long will it be before your leg muscles atrophy enough that in order for you to properly walk again, you'd probably need physical therapy? Two weeks. Two weeks. That's what I thought. And because uh, uh, I, I think Stephen King mentioned that he like after two weeks, he had he had trouble uh, when he was in a bike accident. And, and the same thing's true for even mental muscles. So I'll quote Stephen King again. After he was in bed for two weeks, he tried writing again. And this is Stephen King, who's written probably more bestsellers than anyone in history and sold more copies of his books than just about anyone else. After two weeks of not writing, he said, I couldn't even put a sentence together. I couldn't put two words together. Like he couldn't write. Like his writing muscles had atrophied. And it's the same thing. Like, you know, that discipline, that 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 kind of, um, you know, I don't want to use the word hustle, but that eagerness to to deliver value and to solve problems and to make money and to do all the make all the right decisions with with the people around you and in customers and and products and execution, those those are muscles too, and they atrophy almost instantly after you stop using them. And you know, so on a personal level, I think you know when I talk about this and in, in choose yourself, uh, you know, physically I stopped staying healthy. Like I'll never be in like great shape. I just not a workout type of person, but I just stopped like caring about myself. Like I would not sleep properly, not move around properly, not eat properly. Emotionally, I wouldn't be around good people as much. Like to make money, you have to be around other people who are focused on delivering value and helping you and so on. Uh, Creatively, I wasn't coming up with ideas anymore. Spiritually, I wasn't 
kind of surrendering to the things I couldn't control. And so so that's on a personal level. But then on a money level, um, I would just start thinking I was smarter than I was. Like, well, I made 15 million here, so that must mean I'm smart. So I would make these huge, enormous investments in really bad companies and just go broke. Like, you can't you can't invest in 20 or 30% of your net worth in some company that you think is good, but nobody else does, uh, you can't do that seven times because <laughs> then you'll go broke because most of those companies will be bad. You'll go broke and you're starting to make, you're starting to make other big money decisions like, oh, I'm going to buy a house now. Well, that might go broke. Uh, you, you know, a house is great when you have the money, but the one thing about a house is you can't get the money when you need it. So, Oh, all of a sudden it's the financial crisis, but I wanted, but I wanted to sell my house. Forget it. You're not selling your house for th- three more years. So, you know, suddenly you find yourself making all these bad financial, big and bad financial decisions. And then when you need money, you can't get it. So that's how I went broke every single time. And so what I do now, you know, other than those personal things I mentioned, like I try to be creative every day. I try to surround myself. Yeah, I always write down ideas every single day on this, on my waiter's pad. Oh, I started doing it too. Look, 10 ideas, yeah, 10 ideas, works. 10 ideas. And that builds your idea muscle. If Your idea muscle within six months, it's like you're a, 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 you've, you've got like a jacked idea muscle. It really makes a difference. Like suddenly you start having ideas all the time and it's great, but I stopped doing it. And uh, during these moments when I would get broke, I figured, ah, I don't need, I don't need to have ideas anymore. I'm just smart now. And, uh, uh, you know, I would make these these huge investments in the worst companies. Okay, so but it, but yeah, so I I stopped doing all the personal stuff, and then financially, I would just make every bad decision by making all these big investments. Now, I have all these rules. One is I stick to that personal daily practice of physical, emotional, creative, spiritual health every single day, and I'm always trying to challenge myself in new ways that are you know try to always get out of your comfort zone, so you're never. You're always a little bit hungry. You're always challenging yourself and, and scaring yourself a little bit, uh, like a dare of the day type of thing. And then financially, let's say you were to present me with the absolute best company in the world. Like you're sure this is the best company in the world. I have two rules. One is people a lot smarter than me have to be going into the investment at the same level I'm going in. So so like if if you told me, Warren Buffett's also investing, and you can invest too at the same level Warren Buffett's investing. I'll be, okay, what am I going to do? Run into Warren Buffett at a cocktail party and say, Warren, Warren, how could you have invested in Jordan's company? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I would never argue with Warren Buffett at a cocktail party so because I'm the one drunk and he doesn't drink. And <laughs> uh, the second thing is I always keep my position sizes to mo- no more than two percent of my net worth so i would used to do like 20 or 30 i would be greedy oh my gosh if i do 20 percent of my net worth and this goes up a hundred times then my net worth just went up 10 10 times like if i had 15 million it's, it's gonna be worth over 100 million so i would never do that two percent of my net worth at the most and i never add to the investment whether it's going down or whether it's going up i never add to the investment because if it's a great investment i won't care i'll make a lot of money and if it's a horrible investment i only invested two percent of my net worth I don't, I could sleep at night and then I diversify heavily. So, uh, you know, over time now, over the past 10 years of investing in private companies, I'm, I'm invested in, um, companies in, 
you know, tech, companies in the energy space, companies in the food space, companies in other countries. Uh, so I'm invested, I'm heavily diversified. So no matter what happens to the stock market, I'm fine. And, uh, uh, yeah, and then also I have income streams, so I don't rely on my investments. I also start businesses, and I take very little risk. I only like to start businesses that are profitable on the very first day, which, again, not everyone is like that. Some people like to start businesses, oh, I'm going to raise venture capital money, and we're going to lose money until we go public and that whole thing. I don't take that kind of risk because most of those companies fail. You only hear the stories about Uber or Google that succeed. Most of those companies fail. If you're profitable from day one, though, it's really hard to fail. So, so my, maybe this is the difference between the short game and the long game. Like you're investing twenty percent of you know your net worth into one thing. You're like, it's a really sexy idea to think. Yeah. Wow, it could like go a up. Cowboy, this, right? It could go up this much in such a short amount of time. It could be like it could be a, you know only a number of years before you make that big money, and it goes up a lot. Uh, if you invest 20% in it. But if you diversify, I mean, it's a much longer game, right? Like you're playing the long game now in your investments. Yeah, not, not looking for the quick win. Absolutely. Like I have investments that I'm in now that I've been in since 2009, for instance. So that's 10 years. And I don't even want them, you know, first off, it takes a few years for a company to hit its stride. So let's say it took them five, six years before I realized, okay, they're over the hump. They're going to succeed one way or the other. I'm going to make money on this investment. It takes five or six years for me to even realize that. Otherwise, you don't really know. Are they going to succeed? Are they going to fail? They're not mature yet as a company. It's just like children at the age of four are not mature yet. You can't let them walk across the street on their own. They need adult guidance. So it takes five or six years to see, okay, they're beyond the need for adult guidance. They're going to do well. Um, but then that's when they start their biggest uh, pace of growth. So now they're growing 100% a year. So now 10 years in, some of these companies, they're still growing 100% a year. If I took got my money out now, it would be horrible because, oh, where am I going to put it? I don't really like putting it into something that's only going to grow 5 or 6% a year. I wouldn't know what to do. So I prefer not getting the money from these successful companies. I hope they keep growing 100% a year. Eventually, that'll slow, and then they should probably sell the company. Or sometimes... There are certain bubbles in certain sectors, and then you want them to sell to take advantage of that bubble behavior. So I've benefited from bubble behavior many times, but then you have to make sure you don't believe the bubble yourself, and and you make sure to get get cash instead of staying in stock. Do you think you can time the market? Like I don't, I don't buy that. People are like waiting for like the perfect times to like get in and out. I don't I, think you can time the market. Right. No. It's like. It's like it's like a bias. Like, oh, I I'll know exactly when. Like, I know like I know people that are that are just waiting. No, I think the impo most important thing for investors to repeat every day when they wake up is, I am not smart. I am the stupidest person around. I don't know anything. And by the way, every news source knows less than you. So don't get any information from the news because that's old news. Once it's in the news, There's the everybody knew the news. 20 weeks before it's actually in the newspaper. And, and you know, you can't, yeah, sure, you could say in 2009, oh, Apple's only trading at five times earnings. That's ridiculous. I can't say that I, I didn't I didn't suddenly say, oh, Mar March 9th, 2009, I'm going to throw all my money into the market. I was fully invested all throughout the downturn. I didn't, I didn't, even though 
I knew the downturn was coming. I remember one of the guys the in the big short, the book, not the movie, he pitched me his hedge fund and he said, look, he showed me every reason why. This was in 2006. He showed me the entire U.S. economy is going to collapse. And this is John Paulson who made like billions of dollars shorting, you know, betting against housing. He said, my only worry is that I don't get my cash out before all the banks collapse. Like that's what he said was his only worry. And if not for the bailout, he probably would have had that problem. But I didn't invest with him. I just was, I'm always kind of somewhat optimistic. And the optimism pays off in the long run. Like right now, the market is what? Within one or 2% of all time highs, despite everything that's happened in the past 100 years, World War One, World War Two, the Cold War, uh, you know, the, the depression, the financial crisis, the bailouts. And what happens? Oh, we're within 1% of all-time highs on the market. And and every part of the U.S. economy seems to be, you know, working pretty well right now. So you can't time, you can't time the market. But sometimes when, you, when you're down, like, people will say, oh, that guy's an idiot. So, like, you know, I would go on every financial news show. I was writing for every financial column all through the OOs. Then financial crisis happens. 2009 happens. And then even in 2010, there was a, a, it was either 2010 or 2011, there was a 20% market dip. And I went on TV, I was arguing against Nouriel Roubini, who was called Dr. Doom, because he's always predicting um, bear markets. And it was me versus him. It was like July 5th, either, either 2010 or 2011. And I remember I was driving home, I got two phone calls, uh, one from my mom, and she said, maybe you shouldn't smile so much when the market's down so much and you're on TV. And I'm like, but the market should be up like it always eventually does. And Nouriel Rubini had just said to me, oh, it was going to go down another 20% more. And then another person called me in from a hedge fund. And he's like, everybody here thinks you're like the most stupid idiot in the world. And that was the bottom of the market even since then. And... Nouriel Roubini has trashed me ever since. Like, I remember a year later, someone from some hedge fund wrote to him and said, uh, when are you going to invite James to one of your famous parties? He beat you in that in that debate. And Nouriel Roubini wrote back on the email chain and he said, uh, only when the next recession starts. And this is eight years later, he still has not invited me to any of his parties. So... <laughs> Well, and actually, of- he's blocked me on Twitter for some reason. Oh. Like, who thought? I've never once, said, you know, even communicated with him on Twitter. He, he blocked me. Well, we're, we're speaking of investments. You had a run in with the man Bernie Ma- Bernie Madoff himself. Oh yeah, you tell that story. That's the best story ever. It, it was <laughs> it was sort of a, a bad and a good experience for me. So I was running a, a hedge fund, and uh, my next door neighbor said, "Oh, you should come in and." meet my boss and maybe he'll help you. Maybe he'll allocate he, he'll allocate money to your hedge fund. He does that. And so I said, okay. So we drive in, we go and meet his boss and uh, his boss gives me the tour and his boss is really showing me all sorts of stuff. He said, you know, he, look at all these traders out here. Uh, they're all going to be replaced by computers within the next few years, which that prediction was was very correct. And I said, and then he said, so, so James, what 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 are you here for? What do you want? And I said, uh, I'd really, you know, I invest in a different strategy than you use. And maybe, you know, it'd be great for you to diversify by investing in my strategy. And here's my returns and so on. And he's like, well, A, my returns are better than yours. And B, uh, 
I don't, if I give you money, I don't really know. I'm sort of just hearing what you do, do with the money, but I don't really know that's what you're doing with the money. For all I know, you seem like a good guy. You could, he literally said, you could have a job here if you want. Like, I like you and, and you seem smart, but I don't really know what you're doing once I give you that money. And the last thing we need to see here at Bernard Madoff Securities is our name in the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And so I left and I was so depressed like oh gosh he's right like he he's the man and he 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 his returns are better than mine like uh, you know uh i can't compete and so literally about a month or so later i shut down my fund and st- tried to um or began shutting it down it takes a long time to to shut down and uh i started another business which i sold a uh, stock picker which i sold to the street.com for for 10 million but thanks to Bernie Madoff, I, I made my next batch of, of wealth, which I promptly lost a few years after that. Yeah. But here's the funny thing. As I was leaving Bernie Madoff's offices and, and really depressed, all these other hedge fund friends of mine were calling me and he's like, and they were like, did you figure out how he makes all his money? Do you think he would let us invest in his fund? Uh, and I didn't know the answer. And I reminded them several years later that they all called and they were like, no, we knew all the time he was a scam. And I'm like, you know, I'm pretty sure I remember you calling me and saying we really want to invest with him. And they're like, that's impossible. We knew all along he was a scam. And I'm like, why would I make that up? Like, did I remember incorrectly? And they're like, you must have remembered incorrectly. Just everybody, everybody has really weird experiences and memories about money. It's like such a powerful energy that on the one hand, we try to ignore it. Like we try to act like, oh, I don't care about the money. Oh, right. I care about other things or um you know but but money is takes up such mental real estate that people for, forget things they'll never admit they were wrong they you know there's a lot of like sort of psychological skills you could learn by uh, learning about your attitudes being aware about your attitudes towards money so i know for me that it's 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 better for me to not to to plan in advance strategy so i don't have to think about money so if you have a great company I have to wait for you to tell me such and such great investor is personally putting money in before I even consider it. And then I will only consider maximum, you know, one to 2%, 3% tops, but really not uh, uh, unless there's huge risk taken out of the equation. 2% of my money, no more will go into that investment. And then I'll invest. By the way, I don't even have to know what your company does. If you tell me, Peter Thiel, for instance, or Warren Buffett, or Mark Andreessen is investing in in your company, and I'm allowed, and it's a low valuation, and I'm allowed to invest just one or two percent of my net worth. Then I'll write the check. I don't even have to know what your company does, but uh, and that's my that's my a hundred percent of my investment strategy for private companies. Right, it makes a lot of sense. We're going to shift to talk about one of my favorite favorite things to talk about: education. To start off, I mean, you were thrown out of grad school. Why, why were you thrown out of grad school? Uh, I was thrown out of graduate school. I, I was going to a really good graduate school for computer science. And I loved- You graduated from Cornell undergrad. Cornell undergrad, then- computer science. And then, uh, and I barely graduated because I graduated and I had to skip a year because I couldn't afford the fourth year. And to, to skip a year, you needed a 3.0 GPA. I had like a, last day, I had like a 2.999 GPA and they weren't going to give me the diploma. And I had to go to one of my professors who was giving me a D minus that semester. And I said, listen, can you just, I have no reason for this. Can you just give me a D plus instead of a D minus? 
And he said, okay. And so I graduated. And then I was going to one of the best graduate schools in the country for computer science. There was basically Stanford, MIT, then Carnegie Mellon. And, uh, uh, and I barely got in there. I think the only reason I got in there was I realized after they put me in my office there, you know, every student gets an office that he shares with two or three people. And my office mate was, uh, it was called chip test at the time. It was a computer. Chip test eventually became, um, they eventually they renamed it Deep Thought and eventually IBM uh, kind of hired the the guy who made it and, and he brought that computer and they named it Deep Blue and then Deep Blue ended up beating uh, Gary Kasparov to be the first computer that be- beat a world chess champion. So it was this sort of iconic AI, you know, artificial intelligence moment. But there, Carnegie Mellon had just given a PhD to its only student that was a chess master. So there was nobody left to play against chip test. And so they put, I was a chess master. And so they, they said, okay, we'll accept you. Every other graduate school, by the way, rejected me. And Carnegie Mellon was the best. I thought if all these other schools are rejecting me, certainly the one school that was the best that I, by far that I applied to was going to reject me. Even Cornell, my undergrad school, rejected me. And, uh, uh, and it wasn't as good as Carnegie Mellon for computer science. But they accepted me, and my office mate was the guy who made this chess computer, and that's what I had to do all day long was play this chess computer. <laughs> so, and, then I, and then I got thrown out because I got interested in writing, and I wanted to write... I totally lost interest in computer science, like in the first sem- first semester, for, for whatever reason. And I got really obsessed with things you should get obsessed with in first grade. I got obsessed with my first grade of graduate school, which is <laughs> uh, reading and writing. So I just started writing eight, eight nine, 10 hours a day. And I, I would... That's all I would do. I would use, I would skip every class. I, so I, I failed every single class I took in graduate school, but they were give, give, giving me this really nice fellowship. And so maybe probably unethical, but I stayed for two whole years failing every single class. And then finally they wrote me a letter saying, sorry, James, you know, you're, you know, you're not really mature enough for grad school. When you feel you have enough maturity, we'd be happy to take you back but for now, you have to leave. And so they, they cut me off. And the guy who wrote that letter uh, was the dean of students. And he became my one and only chess student right after I was thrown out of graduate school. And so he was my student. And we've been best friends ever since. Now, did you ever plan on going back, though? He asked me every single year. And now he's like the dean at uh, Georgia Tech. And he's like, look, just come here for a few months, write a paper, and we'll give you the PhD. <laughs> and I, I'm like, nah, I'm not, I'm not mature enough yet. Yeah, <laughs> so <laughs> I can't go back. Yeah. Well, I feel so. I know your, I know your stance on education. I've seen you write about it many times. Uh, when did your, when did you start to your beliefs about education and the whole, the system as a whole start to become what they are now? Well, it started off as a financial thing, what are the things people spend the most money on in life? They spend mo- their most money on a house and on college. And then I don't know what, what's after that, like maybe a couple of cars or maybe uh, I don't. nothing even comes close to house and college. So if you're kind of, you know, upwardly mobile, you're, you're buying expensive, more and more expensive houses 
and spending more and more money. And you want to send your kids to a pretty good college. And even like middle middle tier colleges, like not even in the top 100, their tuitions now are as high as like Harvard, like over 60,000 a year. And so I started, so, so for me, my biggest mistakes were always not only just making huge financial decisions with investments, but making other huge financial decisions like buying a house or going to college, you know, and, and I started looking into this, you know, tuition has gone up 10 times faster than inflation um, every single year since 1977. In fact, in fact, tuition is up more than inflation since then by a factor of 10. Healthcare, which people usually uh, go broke because of healthcare costs, healthcare costs are only up a factor of three over inflation, but tuition's up a factor of 10. And it's because the government will let 18-year-olds take out $250,000 in loans and say, don't worry about it, don't no, worry about it. No but, questions asked. Yeah, no questions asked. And then, oh, by the way, this is the one type of loan you cannot not pay or we will get you in every pot. We'll take it from your salary, we'll take it from your home, we'll take it from everything. Like So we, so now student loan debt's gone from $200 billion in 2002 to $1.6 trillion now. 22 million adults have student loan debt and and the debt they'll ne- they're never going to pay it back like the the uh, somebody wrote me 2 days ago she has $363,000 in student loan debt and you think oh my god well she didn't have to go to Harvard no she went to some random school she did a year or two of law school and she's stuck now cuz she doesn't want to be a lawyer so which happens to many people but it used to be a generation ago you didn't have $363,000 in debt yet maybe Forty thousand dollars in debt, twenty thousand dollars in debt, and and you can still start a company and you know participate in the American frontier, which is entrepreneurship and innovation and helping people and delivering value. Now, I literally know people who get great degrees and they have to get like a job as a salesperson in an eyeglass store because you have to immediately start paying down that debt. There's and what happens is is that rich people send their rich kids to college without debt. Those rich kids marry other rich kids who are also not in debt and going to those best schools. And the people in debt, you know, are going to not as good schools. They're getting, they're taking on this huge student loan debt. They marry people in huge debt. And so it goes another generation. And so that's really how income, it's not even an education thing. It's, it's a huge societal income inequality thing where income inequality is getting greater and greater. Uh, people can't, those 22 million Americans can't go off and start companies anymore. So, so you know, in China with, you know, something like 500 million people uh, with college degrees or whatever, they're starting companies, they're improving on their technology. You know, the world's shifting. And in part, it's because young kids are so straddled by debt. Now, on the educational side, it does not take four years to learn a skill. And, 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 and employers even are looking more and more at skills than degrees. So it takes maybe a year to learn a skill well enough uh, as if you had gone to a four-year college. And, and you can learn it online for free, any, any important skill that will help you in your job. Instead of the you know, 80% of, of American students are like involved in some, they're majoring in some kind of grief studies and, you know, nobody's, you know, learning real skills because you could learn those all online easily. 
And I don't know, I, even from an educational perspective, oh, but then people say, then they just say, people say, oh, but, you know, it's a good way to socialize, learn how to be social. I don't have to pay my kid $250,000 to make friends from the ages of 18 to 22. She's going to do that, like, with, with, with or without me paying her to do it. Well, what's, like, the alternative then? Like, so you're an 18-year-old. What's the socialization then, Equ- the socialization equivalent? Well, that's a great question because... 18-year-olds are so brainwashed by their school system into thinking there's only one way to live in society. Isn't that right? And, and so so I have 18-year-olds. I have, I have two 17-year-olds, an 18-year-old, and two 20-year-olds. And everybody, they're all five of them are convinced they need to go to college to have a good life. No matter what I, they've read all my stuff, no matter what I say, uh, my, my daughter who's in college, I said to her, I will pay you exactly, tell me the tuition amount. I will just give you cash and you can have it and just do what you love to do. So she wants to be an actress, which is really hard to do, obviously. Majoring in acting is not going to make you a successful actor. So I said, why don't you spend a year at least learning auditioning, which is not taught in college. And that's a big part of the lifestyle of being a successful actor. See if you could psychologically handle it bartend or be a waitress because you're going to have to do that if you want to be a successful actor. Uh, do the things that actually will give you a four-year head start and will teach you more quickly the skills. Now, you ask about socialization. Do you think if she's a waitress and also spending half her time auditioning, she's not going to meet other kids her age or or similar age who are doing something similar? By the way, they don't have to be her age. I have no friends who are my age. I have friends who are up to 20 years older and up to 30 years younger. Like you're, you're, as you get older and older, your friends are not your age anymore. We're not in the same grade. Like that's a school thing. <laughs> like we're, uh, we're, we're, I have friends all over the age map. Yeah. I don't know if anyone is exactly my age that I'm friends with, nor do I ask, nor do I know if anybody has a degree that I'm friends with. So these things start to disappear in importance, all the things that kids think are important. And I try to tell my 18 year old, I stopped, arguing. I would do more questioning and uh, like, well, what do you think the degree is going to help you with? Uh, Oh, getting a job. Well, what about the fact that Google, Ernst & Young, and these other 50 schools say they no longer will look at degrees? I even just read an article today. Some big company no longer is even allowed to look at degrees. They tell their people, don't look at degrees at all. And they showed real high executives who have no degrees. And... But my kids won't believe it. They say, oh, no, it's just for safety. I'll get a job if I have a degree. And, you know, uh, I don't know how to convince my my kids. Now, I suppose what could have convinced them would have been to say, well, I'm going to force you to take out the loans. But I didn't do that. Well, it's, Which is maybe a mistake. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. We're, we're sold this default path. We're like sold an American dream. And I don't want to give off the wrong connotation there, but I think you know what I'm saying. I mean, you talk about the default path where it's like, go, you know, get good grades so you can get into a good school, go graduate with good grades so you can get a good job and work in that job for 40 years until you're 65 years old, then retire and depend on a non-existent social security check for the next three years until you die and save everything, including travel for those three years. Why are we so stuck on that path? Well, I think because I I don't want to participate. I'm not participating. I think I mean just think of yourself and think of every parent here or every parent listening to this. You know, up to the age of thirteen, 
kids sort of latch onto their parents. Like when they're 12 or 11, they're still latching onto you when you cross the street. Like, help me cross the street. By the age of 13, we all know teenagers start to get a little bit more aggressive with their parents and they start to hang out with their friends more, which is fine because 70,000 years ago, somebody my age would have been dead and they couldn't rely on help. A 15-year-old 70,000 years ago couldn't rely on help from their weak, old parents. They could only rely on forming strong bonds with their peers. And uh, and our DNA is not different. Just because society is different than it was 70,000 years ago, we're no longer running from lions and other tribes and whatever. Society is very different, but the DNA is the same. So they start to latch onto their peers and all of their peers think that college, you know, we've, America has spent trillions of dollars Think, training kids to think college is the only way to go. I mean, uh, the American government makes a lot of money on the interest from student loans. American government makes a lot of money on the interest from housing loans. So so everything in the educational system, which is essentially run by the government, trains kids to think in only one way. And the kids then compete with each other and their and their, their peer group says, oh no, if you don't get into this school or that school or you don't have this on your SAT. I mean, the SAT is like, the stupidest test ever, the stupidest way to measure aptitude ever. And now they're adding like an adversity score, so it gets complicated. And regard, like everything has good intentions. Like, yes, it's good intentions, like take into account the differences in people. It's good intentions. Everybody should have a higher education. These are all good intentions, but they're not the only way. And, and at some point, people decide this is the only way. And then they spend trillions of dollars trying to convince everyone else. So that's very convincing. And there are other ways. And I do think eventually the debt will get so high that people are just like, oh my gosh, this is ridiculous. You're killing society. But I hope it's not too late when we get that realization. Yeah, well, I'll play devil's advocate for a second. I mean, I to me, for me to play a devil's advocate on education is is interesting and unheard of because I just post, I'll post like, and people know this here, I will post on LinkedIn, formal education is a huge scam. And just take all the flack, some flack, but mostly mostly people are on board, which is interesting. More and more people are agreeing now. And I've even seen it shift over the past six months. Yeah, uh, I, but, when I first yeah. wrote about this in 2005, sorry to interrupt. Yes, yes, yes. I first wrote about this in 2005, no one agreed with me. I lost friends, everything. But now I think it's at least a discussion, although my kids don't agree, but it's at least a discussion among people. You know, it's interesting. Somebody even commented on one of the posts. I mean, I kind of I kind of go off about it every two weeks, but it was like a month or two ago. And one of the comments was, yep, one of those subjects that everyone seems to agree upon. And I was like, wow, things have really changed in this talk. It was just six months ago, six, seven months ago that I was getting viciously attacked for for all of this it was it was it was like it was like 80 percent good agreeing 20 percent hatred well, well but it, now it's like 95 agreeing five percent like uh well and it's not even like hatred anymore it's like they, they're on the defense i think it's because candidates for president now have realized it's a problem so they're talking about student loan debt relief i don't know if that's the solution actually i don't know what's the, what's the solution well i think i think I think the solution is first increase, you know, price is a function of supply and demand. So we've in drastically increased the demand. There's a fixed amount of college accredited college seats, but we've drastically 
increase the demand by essentially making it free for 18-year-olds. They think it's free because they don't understand the debt that they're taking on. They don't understand what risk is. The the, the prefrontal cortex of the brain, you, you, a human typically finishes growing that at the age of 25, and that's the part of your brain that assesses risk. So by definition, 18-year-olds are mentally ill. Like their their brains are deformed from the brains of adults, and they don't know how to assess risk. So for them, and there's no risk at all in going to college. So so that's why they don't agree. But um, you know, so so you can't. I don't know if the, so so they're always going to have demand if you give make it free for them. The way you cre- increase supply though to reduce price is let's just make all online colleges accredited. And those have infinite seats. So make Coursera or Khan Academy or Code Academy, which teach actual skills. They've been around for a decade. You know, people have learned lots of skills and gotten lots of jobs because of these. So they're clearly providing a good education. Let's make them accredited. Then boom, uh, supply goes way up. Uh, Demand remains the same now and price goes way down. So that at least solves the price problem. In terms of uh, debt relief, I don't know, you know, sure, it would be great to forgive everyone's debt and and maybe it should come from the private sector like that the billionaire Robert Smith is um paying back all the loans of from Morehouse. I thought that was a really good thing. I think more steps like that coming from the private sector like they benefit from the educational system so help the people who are now in debt from going to the same colleges that you did. That's that seems good rather than you know, it, it, the government seems to complicate everything, and it's not that like that I'm a such a libertarian, but I'd rather individuals help, you know, than than a big institution helps. Well, it's not even the financial side of things that that I look at when it comes to education. That's half the problem. That's only half. The other half of the problem is that I don't even know that we're getting an education in there. We're learning, some of the things we're learning are, I mean, the, the syllabi and material are decades outdated. Yeah, and even they say, oh, well, not enough, only 7% of kids in college now are doing some STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, math. and 7%? I, yeah, which is 33% in China, 7% here. And uh, I don't even know if that helps. Like, I majored in computer science, then I went to graduate school in computer science, and then after I was thrown out of graduate school, I stayed around the grad school enough. Like I had various jobs doing programming at the grad school. So it took it took another three years before I got a real job. I got a job at HBO doing computer programming. And I here I had already, you know, I got this undergrad degree at a good school for computers. I had programmed for years and years and years. I had studied it for years and years and years. I couldn't do anything. I was the lowest level programmer at at my job, and I was completely incompetent. I was so incompetent. The people at HBO, they said to me, like, look, we don't want to fire you, but we have to send you to remedial computer programming classes. Um, And I'm like, I went to grad, I got accepted to, I I can't say I went, but I got accepted to graduate school at Carnegie Mellon for computer science. I've been programming for years. I got my undergrad in computer science with, my computer science classes were almost all A's, and uh, I was an idiot at computer programming. I had to take two months of remedial classes at AT&T. Uh, and then, but, but then I got really into it and I got better. You don't only really get good at things you're passionate about. Somehow or other, I got passionate again about programming and I was good for a short while more. Well, now I think it's compounded because 
here's what's going on in the universities. Let me, I'll, I'll give you the, the inside scoop because unfortunately, I call it prison. You know, I, grad, I get out of prison in a year. I'm, I am still in prison. I'm still in school. Uh, and here's what's going on in there, especially in the business school. The homework assignments, the homework and quizzes are McGraw-Hill. They're, you just click through them and you can still get an A just by clicking through them. The the tests are auto-generated by McGraw-Hill's test bank of questions. You just click like the learning outcomes and out comes a test. We bubble it into a Scantron. And then that Scantron comes out with a number that somehow defines us. Grades are an illusion, by the way. Uh, and I j- and uh, Oh, and the teachers are reading from McGraw-Hill PowerPoints that are just the same. They're cookie-cutter classes. And we're not actually learning anything. And the system can be gamed. Cheating is rampant. System can be gamed. If it can be gamed, it most likely a lot of the time will be gamed. Uh, so more and more, this problem is compounding, and people are coming out with, uh, with no education. Really, yeah, uh, we're not I, learning anything that's relevant to the world today. We're not. I so agree. We seek outside resources. We have to. You know, you use the word, responsible. You use the word prison. Colleges come from. They started in the Renaissance, and. There used to be, you'd have a college, you'd send all your 18-year-old men to it, and there was guards circling the college. But the guards were not facing outwards, keeping out, you know, roving bands of barbarians or whatever. The colleges, the guards were facing inwards to make sure the students wouldn't escape because this was right after the, it used to be, everyone knew violent crimes were most likely to be committed by men ages 18 to 22. So in the medieval period, kings would send the 18-year-old men off to the crusades, like, go go to Jerusalem, get out of here. And those were over. So now it's like, okay, go, we'll call it a college, but it's really a prison. Like you say, this this is how they avoided like violent crimes in, in their various yeah. kingdoms. I mean, I'll tell you what, I mean... I. I guess I refer to it as prison because, like, the only thing or one of the only things that gets me down nowadays, I mean, I, I've, like, I've done so much to just build good around my life. Like, there's so many tools in my tool belt to, like, make me feel good all the time, uh, like reading every day, non-negotiables, like reading 10 pages. I wake up, read Choose Yourself. I read, uh, you know, I read some Mark Manson. I read Tony Robbins, um, you know, and I'll exercise and I'll eat right, no grains and uh, those that's those are my tools in my tool belt. But school, school gets me down. Like it, it just it the the fact that like I'm there. It's like crushing the crushing my creativity, my uh, uniqueness, um, and it's just like a, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a gigantic and and tragic criminal waste of time and energy and resources. Yeah, because look, you're doing this podcast. So you're st- obviously this is not like a school thing. So you're learning an important skill by doing this. You're pro- you're talking to, not counting me. You're talking to interesting people all the time, probably. Yeah, Mark, and, Mark Manson was on it. Yeah. Oh yeah, Mark Mutual Manson's friend, a great yeah. guy. Uh, so he he's been on my podcast yep, as well several times. And uh, uh, so you're learning real things, and then you go back to school. It's probably like a different a different world. This is more the real world where you're learning. Like when I was in graduate school, but I started writing all the time, then I was, oh, this is like what it's like to build a really difficult skill and get good at it. It's very hard to do. It's not like getting an A. You're going to get thousands of Fs before you get one C, 
before you get one A, like that's a real skill that you're gonna learn in, in life. And you never learn that. Like if, if my one of my daughters gets an A minus, she starts crying. And I, I one time I was teaching my daughter when she was much younger, I was teaching her to play tennis and she would start crying if she hit the serve into the net. And I said, look, you, you need to, to learn how to hit a good serve. You're gonna have to hit take enough risks to hit the ball into the net many times, but they don't teach you this in school because you're supposed to get an A all the time, which is a completely wrong philosophy of life. It's like the reverse philosophy of life. Well, fittingly enough, you know, they don't teach it in school. This podcast is about all about learning the lessons we should have learned in school, but did not and learning them from the people that we should have learned them from. Because I mean, most often too, the professors, you know, on top of them not being particularly, particularly dialed in, um, they haven't actually done the thing that they're, talking about well like what if there's a class that told you hey write down 10 ideas a day and by the way okay t- tomorrow's class write down 10 ideas that are improvement on yesterday's 10 ideas okay now write down 10 ideas for that amazon could do to improve themselves now take two of your idea lists and combine them and see what the combination of ideas looks like like nobody there's not a single class that actually teaches maybe the most important skill for building a a business and a life skill which is how to have ideas and be creative there's no there's no classes on that have a jacked idea muscle like we were talking about earlier i mean that's so important and i've i mean i showed you i mean i've just seen i i can see i mean i've only been doing this the past week or two um, but i can see how it's going to change my life i mean the idea is not to have 3,650 good ideas per year. Like it's not possible, right? But it's just to exercise that idea muscle and become really good at that. Right, the whole purpose is just to have the idea muscle. So you could have have ideas about anything, stupid ideas. Like I had an idea list (laughs) the other day, uh, 10 things like really wrong with recent superhero movies. So for instance, I'm not gonna give a spoiler for Avengers Endgame. Did you see Avengers Endgame? I did not. I, I'm I'm very sheltered in the movie world. Okay, I, I, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to give any spoilers yeah. anyway. But the bad guy, if you watch the first scene, this is the very first scene. He's on a planet in a t-shirt picking fruits. Like he, his whole philosophy was basically a weird way of destroying the universe in order to prevent. Uh, climate change and the superheroes are all trying to kill him and he just wants to like pick fruits after everything's all said and done so i just came up with like a list of again maybe bad ideas but they're not even really ideas at all for anything but it's just like a list of ways to stretch myself like uh in what ways is the black panther movie actually the most racist movie in what ways why why did nobody on star wars ever read a single book uh there's just all these weird things with all the movies we love so uh, i just wanted to come up with a weird yeah, list i'll share with you my my last three ideas from may 19th the 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 first one is drop out of school and don't give a fuck because uh, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of social and parental pressure there. Uh, never drink alcohol again and then drink 200 ounces of water a day. I think those are good ideas. Oh, those are good ideas, yeah. <laughs> I, I really want – I don't know. I should do the water thing. 200 I don't do might the water be too thing. much. I don't know. You could die from drinking too much water. I think the right amount is like eight of these a day. Yeah. I, but I, I don't do that. I think that's right too. I heard like twice twice your body weight. Or no, half your, what is it? What I think, maybe it's half your body weight. That sounds reasonable. So for me, I guess it'd be, uh, it'd be, it'd be 70 ounces. Well, I've, I, what I do is when I wake up, I make sure I drink a whole one of these first thing because you're after 
for me, after 13 hours of sleeping, I need to um, dehydrate. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> after eight I mean, hours I love of sleep, but it's too much. After eight hours of sleeping, you're usually dehydrated, so you got to drink water, and a lot of people right. don't. Yeah, I mean, to circle back from like, you know, you, we mentioned Steve Jordan and the mentor. The, you, you, you turned the tables on me and asked a question. One of his golden rules is, you know, 16 ounces of water right when you wake up. Oh, that's good, 60. This is, right. what is this? Like I think it's like 16.9. Okay. I don't know where they got the right, point nine good. from, but that's how water bottles are. Maybe it's 16.7. No, 16.9, I was right. So we want to talk a little bit more about education. We're going to start to put a bow on it. And if you were what, – what question would you ask parents to consider if they are wondering if college is the right thing for their children? Well, I mean – uh, just picture what if you just had this money that you were going to put aside for college, whether it's debt or your money, and imagine the kid uh, exploring interests but having this money in their bank account that that they can't spend. It. They need your approval on everything. I, you know, I don't know who who knows the right methodology there, but just imagine what they can do in those four years if they didn't go to college. Like I mentioned, my daughter who who is interested in acting. She could go through four years of auditioning, four years of taking improv classes, four years of taking maybe singing classes, uh, and then learn also all the skills that actors need, like being a good waiter in a big city. You can actually make a lot of money. Uh, uh, and then she can also learn all of the interests that all the other people she meets are starting to explore and, and come up with ways to maybe succeed. So right now, she's in an opinion ghetto where everybody believes the exact same thing. Opinion ghetto. No one's actually learning real world skills that they can use. So when she graduates at 22, she'll have essentially no money and no skills and starting from scratch at a point where she could have started uh, four years earlier. So I don't know what question to ask parents really because parents usually also want to send, like look at all these parents who were rich and famous who they paid like hundreds of thousands of dollars to get their kids into mediocre schools it's crazy and then you have like the dr dre saying oh well my kid didn't cheat she got into whatever school you know the right way oh what about the 70 million dollar donation you made for their new library like it's just all kind of this weird scam well yeah by the way i don't blame him he did yeah, yeah. he did what he felt he had to do but i don't know if parents are the right people to convince i think the kids will be convinced when they realize how much pain they're in the ki- parents are not in pain the kids are well, back to devil's advocate from like 30 minutes ago before I lost that. I don't know that the answer, as, as much as I despise what's going on in the education system and I think it's criminal, I don't think the answer is to not go to school. It's just to incorporate the relevant learning outcomes and sort of, and maybe, maybe not have it be as outrageously expensive and inflated. I mean, it's, it's, an, I mean, as you were mentioning, it's, in, it's inflated much like disproportionately compared to other things. Yeah, um, so, I, so that's why we just got to revamp the system. That's it's it's not a so it's that's not a, a terrible unfixable problem, right? So that's why there's several solutions. One is to increase the supply of seats so price goes down. The other is to maybe reduce demand by showing people that oh, co- co- big companies don't um, require degrees, uh, and also showing kids you can get skills in other ways now, particularly with YouTube and all these online courses and everything. Then the actual equation of price is a function of supply and demand might be accurate. Right now, it's not accurate, and that's part of the problem. And then, you know, 
I don't know, just to show kids that there's alternatives to it. Then if you decide to go to school, power to you. Go to school. Uh, I don't even think kids should go to high school, to be honest, but that's another, <laughs> that's another discussion. Uh, I mean, man. I see now kids go to high school because yeah. they're afraid they're not going to get into college. So they're up at like 1, 2 in the morning preparing for these stupid AP exams. Literally, like they'll be crying yeah. at 1 in the morning while finishing their homework and tears dropping on their homework. <laughs> it's like the worst thing we're putting these 16 and 17-year-olds through. There, there were a couple of good things I was thinking about in in high school uh, the other day, um, as far as learning goes. The overall experience was just piss poor for me, but that's another story. Uh, you know, I was introduced to the Great Gatsby in English class, uh, and uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, um, even just the vocabulary that we that we did in that class. And in ninth grade, I, I felt benefited me. Um, so there it's, was, it's great that you learn from those. I had those books also then. I didn't learn from them then. I had to reread them at age 25. And then I'm like, oh, okay, now I get it. So for me and for everybody, I think it's just different. The age when you realize, oh, there's art and beauty here. I would never, I because I was interested in other things, in ninth grade, I would not have appreciated. I did not appreciate Old Man in the Sea, Great Gatsby. Old Man in the Sea now is a book I reread every single year. I hated it in ninth grade. I just, I read one chapter and I said, forget it. I'm just going to use the Cliff's Notes, which was then the equivalent of cheating. I don't know if that even exists anymore. <laughs> and well, it's even worse. Yeah, now you can just buy your, your essays online. That uh, you could go to. So every single answer to these quizzes that we have to take online, and I kid you, every single one. It's on a website called Quizlet.com. Everyone, everyone just copy, paste, and it shows up verbatim, word for word, in, in Quizlet. And it's uh, so like you could just, you know, again, you don't have to pay attention. You could just get in it. You just, you just, you just have the answers there. They're all there. Yeah. So I, I believe it. So why yeah. go to high school even? True. I think junior <laughs> high school probably. I don't know. Junior high school was the worst. I, I wouldn't even think it. Homeschool is like the only thing I was there. <laughs> I remember like when I went, elementary school was fine. Like, but then when I, I, we switched to like middle school and I remember the first time the bus rolled up to middle school and I was like in this kind of like lower class Jewish neighborhood and we were all like these tiny You're Jewish, Jewish right? people. Yeah. I am and, as well. And and we, I, we rolled up to middle school and there was like these kids, eight foot tall kids with beards and they were just like... <laughs> beating each other up and then beating us up. And it was just like, that was the beginning of the end of school for me. Yeah. So do you think formal education is a huge scam? Uh, yeah, completely for all the reasons. Yeah. Yeah. And I mostly agree. because of the good intentions of let's say, give everybody an education that got twisted. I mean, why does the president of some of the tiniest schools in the world, I don't even want to call any out actually, but like a president of one, like, really bad tiny school makes three and a half million dollars a year and if you just google that you can see which one but they all kind of make millions a year why are they making so much money like the the presence of these schools because they know they can charge more and more and the government will take care of it mm. yeah so a couple of a couple of more topics here uh you know about saying no you have a really good philosophy around saying no like how do you i mean because why first of all why do you say no to certain things and second how do you do it? Well, I think it's I think it's really hard because it's a confusing thing. Um, like often it's the case that you should say yes to a lot of things. Like when you're young, you should say yes to new opportunities and experiencing new things. And 
you know, even when you're older, you shouldn't want to just sit in your house all day and watch TV. You need to say yes, like, okay, I'll do this. I'll go out to this event. I'll go out to this museum or meet these friends or, you know, and often my instinct is to say no, like, ah, I don't really want to, what am I going to say to them? I don't really want to go out at all. And, but if, if you kind of judge something in your mind and, you know, you either like super excited about something, like you, as they say, it's either like a hell yeah or it's a no. And so sometimes I say yes to things. Like I said yes to something recently that was me doing a bunch of live podcasts around the country. And oh, yeah, I, 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 tour, yeah. I, I realized, uh, oh, if I say no to this right now, it's not too late. And I feel like this enormous wave of relief. So that told me, okay, I need to say no. And then you just say no as honestly as possible. Uh, you, you write to everybody and you say, look, uh, I'm being really honest. Uh, this doesn't really seem to be right right now for me or for, for my audience. And I have too many things going on, so I can't really devote my full resources to this. Let's, I, I apologize about this. If you never want to talk to me again, that's fine. But let's potentially revisit this at a future date. So that's one way of saying no. You know, another way, how do you say no in a relationship? Like, let's say you're with somebody for a long time, but it's not working out and you want to end it. That's another kind of saying no. And that's very difficult. It's usually very difficult to decide to say no. But again, if you feel like, if you wake up in the morning and you feel like, you know, my life would be better if nobody was sleeping right next to me right now, then you probably should say no to that relationship. If you consistently think that and you know, that's another type of no. You kind of need strategies for each type of no. You you want to you wanna do no where uh, it inflicts the least amount of hurt on anyone and, you know, you take responsibility for the things you might have done wrong to get to this point. And, you know, you have to have, you have to really think of a strategy that, that works for each no. Well, you know what I took from you the other day? I was like, so I got this question. I get these questions all the time. And it's like, Jordan, hey, Jordan, this is the first time I've ever heard from this guy, first time I've ever seen his name, like, no prior relationship. Hey, Jordan, can you introduce me to Dan Locke? Like, and I was like, uh, let me just risk, risk my uh, highest value connection. Uh, I get that too. And so, so I, I, and then so I get in the shower and I'm like, God, how am I going to, what am I going to do? Do I ignore it? Do I, I, I have a problem with ignoring things. Um, I've gotten better at it recently, but and then I like I, I as I'm preparing for our interview, I put you know I put you on a podcast, and you talk about saying no and just literally just saying no and with no explanation, and because if you give an explanation, then you give room for them to come back with oh well that's okay we can just do this instead. So I just I got back and I said I said can't, and he goes no problems mate. And I said oh, thanks for understanding. Yeah it no works. I think I think that being really direct about it, you're right like you can't. You can't, um, there's no reason why suddenly you have to defend yourself. Like they're the ones who are asking and then suddenly you have to defend yourself. You know, sometimes, and people always say uh, to me, well, it didn't hurt to ask. Actually, it did hurt to to ask me because you're not valuing the time and effort I put in to build that connection. Um, So now I don't value my connection with you as much because you asked me that. So sometimes it does hurt to ask. You know, I have one friend who says, uh, you know, if, if, if you never ask, the answer is always no, which is good advice too, 
But on something that's like high stakes, where it's like I'm asking a personal connection of mine for a favor, I'm very, I don't even, just like I'll say no a lot, I won't ask a lot depending on the strength of my connection with that person. Mm -hmm. Now, if I were to give an answer to someone like that, I would have to say, look, I do what's called permission networking. So I need to know all the reasons you need to talk to him. Then I need to talk to him and go through all of your reasons. And if he, and, and then I need to make sure everyone's in agreement. Then I make the intro. And usually by then, people's are, people are like, okay, don't, don't bother. Because they understand then the effort I have to do. And then they're asking me for a lot of effort. Now, some people then will say, um, okay, I want to ask them this, 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 this. And I realize the person's going to say no, and I don't want to ask them anyway. And then I write no. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I've, I agree on all the all the above, not the above, but uh, all mentioned there. But 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 again, though, like it also may, puts into light the times you ask other people for favors. You got to be really selective of that. Like you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't waste. You can't risk a no from them if they're a strong connection that you trust. Now, I, if I write Barack Obama, who's not a strong connection of mine, and I say, hey, you want to come on my podcast? That's actually a valid question because chances are he's going to say no. It puts my name in front of his PR people. Uh, like, I'll give a reason. I'll say, look, um, Barack Obama supporting these 18 causes. We'll talk about them. I'm really interested in them. I have an audience of this, and they're all influencers, and it'll be... You know, it'll make a small dent in his thing. So I'll give good reasons why I'm, you have to always ask with their agenda in mind. And so then I'm willing to have a no, and they're aware that I'm willing to have a no, but I'm at least showing them that I'm thinking of their agenda instead of mine. Like, oh, it'd be great to have Barack Obama on my podcast. That's a horrible way to ask it. You have to know <laughs> how to, I, I had a book, The Power of No, and then I was going to do a book. I had a deal to do a book, The Power of Ask, which is showing people how to properly ask, Ooh. which is hard for me to ask. And um, I only write books about things that are hard for me personally. So this way I have to learn how to do them. But I ended up never doing, I ended up saying no to that book deal once I got it. Hmm. Where does your chess master, like where does, we've talked about so many things today. Where does chess fit into all of this? Well, chess is great because A, it's a good way to, um, it's a good activity to do while I'm on the phone with people. So I'll just log on online somewhere and like, okay, yeah, how's it going? And I'm just playing chess while talking to people. Um, but it's also been good for, it's good. It was good for me to learn. I learned it relatively late, meaning I was like 17 when I started taking it seriously. And, but I got very good very fast. And it was a good thing to learn how to learn. So I learned all the skills I needed to quickly become like a very strong player at a skill that was important to me. And so now I use those meta skills to learn other skills that are important to me, whether it's investing or selling or negotiating or stand-up comedy or public speaking or computer programming or, you know, I've been able to, I always view it as I'm able to quickly skip the so-called 10,000 hour rule because of the way I learn chess, I break it down and, and learned all these meta skills about learning. And so that was very valuable to me. It's also valuable to me in this kind of BS way in that um, people think people think chess and intelligence are correlated, but they're totally not. And But I've been able to take advantage of that repeatedly in my life. Uh, that has been such an amazing gift that just society views chess as re related to intelligence. And so I, I've gotten jobs, I've raised money, I've 
made friends all because I've, I've gotten in places that normally I would never be able to get into all because I was good at chess. Mm, fantastic. So, you know, throughout all the ups and downs in your career and your life in, you know, in all of your businesses and ventures, uh, what have you, uh, you know, we're back here, but you're doing very well. Um, seem like a happy guy. Uh, what's next for you? How do you envision your career painting out over the next 20 years? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I never think about that. I just think what would be, you know, for of all the things I'm interested in, let's say there's five things I'm interested in. What's the highest priority thing for me to do today to uh, keep moving forward one of the five things I'm interested in? So for instance, uh, I, um, a year ago I had, or six months ago, I had an idea on my list of ideas, I had an idea for a TV show, and it was one of those things where it, I, it was stuck in my mind. So I figured, you know what, this might be a good idea. So I wrote uh, an agent the idea, and I've written him ideas many times over the past three years. He usually never responds to me, or he'll write back simply no. Uh, but this time he wrote back within three seconds, call me. And I called him, and then he got the president of a big production company on the phone, and they all agree, let's go forward. And then they made appointments with a bunch of networks. I went, and so moving it forward, I really fleshed out the idea because uh, it was only a one line when I sent it to him. I had to really flesh it out. And then um, I had to prepare and think about how I was going to pitch it to networks. So that took some work and more, many more idea lists. Then I went and pitched it to all the networks with all of them. And then a couple of networks said, yes, we've picked a network to work with. And now... We're in what's called development with a network on this show. And if we do well in development, then they green light uh, uh, a series. So each day I say, do I need to do anything? I still want to do this. I wake up and I decide, do I still want to do this? I still want to do this. What can I do to move it forward? I'll do that uh, a little bit of that. And that's how I do each day. So I know by doing that, I'm never doing things I don't like. You, you never want to do more of the of the thing you never want to do less of the things you love to do more of the things you hate and sometimes i get out of balance and i do do more of the things i hate but then i remind myself of that line and cut back on the things i hate to do more of the things i love mm, love it we're gonna play a game i'm gonna say a word or a phrase and you're gonna tell me the first thing that comes to mind and it's very important that you say the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah, it's hard for me because usually i riff yeah, on lots of things <laughs> people get really frustrated they're like i should have sent me this in advance <laughs> so first one american dream i think of housing and i think it's a failed dream it's a failed dream money money i think of i get really anxious and stressed and i think of all the times i've gone broke and i think of ptsd on money and i think thank god knock on wood i i've hopefully learned my lesson lessons Nerdy. I think I'm not a nerd and everyone calls me one. <laughs> I'm not a nerd. I was talking to some comedian the other day, like, okay, here's how a joke could work with like a nerdy guy like you. I'm not a nerd. It's <laughs> because I look like one. Uh, Curly hair and glasses not yeah, make me a nerd. My 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 one of my friends was, was uh you know, like I was talking about him, you know, about my upcoming interviews and he's like, I you know, I say uh, you know, I mentioned your name in passing and and he goes, oh, that nerdy guy? And I'm like, I'm like, come on. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not, 
I'm not a nerdy guy. Well, what's the definition of a nerdy guy? Like, I think someone who has, like, very few social skills and, like, can rattle off, like, the cube root of, like, very high numbers yeah. really quickly. <laughs> but I don't even, I can't, I'm not that good at math. And uh, uh, I think I have some social skills. I'm shy, but I have some social skills. Next word, success. Success, I think, always doing what you love to do. The ratio of love to hate during your day should be as high as possible. Love. Love? Well, I love my wife who's sitting over there, and, and I love my kids. And I think, I don't know, there's more new age type things, but I, that's the first thing I think of. Education. At homeschooling. Hey. Like you, all, you learn everything by yourself. Yeah, self-education. Yeah. Okay. That, that doesn't mean not with mentors and people who teach you, but you have to drive that. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. No mentor will choose you. You have to choose them. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a, gosh, no. Nah, the with Steve a, Jordan, yeah, yeah. he didn't he, reach to you and pull you out of the masses. You were already doing something that attracted him to you. And so he can start showing you. Mm-hmm. You know, this is for when you're older. Let's say you're starting a business. You have two employees. Let's say one's here and one's here. So one's better than the other. And people are thinking of firing the worst one. You have to ask this question. Is this one coachable or is this one coachable? If this one is coachable, you keep this one and you fire this one. Because yep. this guy's going to go here. This person's going to stay here. So coachability and, and, and his sense that you're coachable or Steve Jordan's sense that you're coachable, that is what it leads to mentors and teachers and success and so on. Absolutely, James. My final word, James Altucher. Uh, nothing. Nothing. That's my. Yeah. That's you, my first. Are, are my you gut afraid response. of saying the wrong thing? No, no. That's my gut. You say, "What's the first word that comes to mind?" And nothing yeah. comes to mind. Gotcha. So, I highly, highly recommend. I mean, choose yourself right here. This book is a must read. Oh, I, thank you. I highly recommend. If you if you don't have it, I mean, a lot of people have this book. You must get it. Uh, JamesOutToucher.com, Right. People can learn yeah. more about you there. Um, I've been a long time. Subscriber, multi-year subscriber to the Altucher Confidential. I I really appreciate it because you're yeah. you're very young, and people sometimes say, "Oh, what's your demographic?" Like everybody's supposed to have a demographic and like a marketing demographic. No, just anybody from the age of like sixty, they're maybe recently retired and they want to figure out what to do with their lives to eighteen, and they want to figure out what they want to do with their lives and they want to be happier and and not conform to the usual rules of of happiness and success and society and so on. Absolutely. And then uh, the James Altucher show. A great show. It's uh, Thank you. It's one of my top top two, top three favorite podcasts up there with uh, you know Joe Rogan. And then, of course, I, I mean, I love the show. What's great? Just listening to Joe Rogan on the way over here. Amazing. And is there anywhere else you'd like to point people to? No, um, I don't like to really promote stuff. Yeah, yeah, I feel that. So I have to acknowledge you. And I know you don't know this, but the only reason that I was able to publish that book right there because of your self-publishing guide. Oh, really? Other, otherwise, I would have had no clue how to do it. But it's actually shockingly simple. And you showed me how to do that. And I know you showed so many other people how to do the same. You've empowered people to dispel their truths in a book format. And uh, I think it's a fantastic yeah, service. You know, it's hard to get a book published by mainstream publishers because there's only like four or five of them that could... So you're dependent on... Four or five people who don't know you, don't know your book, don't know your audience. You're dependent on these four or five people to say yes. When the reality is, you could write the book, 
you could you could upload it to Amazon. You could design the cover. Hopefully, you do a good job on on all these different things. And by the way, self published books on average sell more than traditionally published books. And they're actually and well, people say, but self published books are not good. No, if you actually look at all the star reviews, the the, the ranking. Self-published books have, on average, a higher star review than traditionally published books. Absolutely. Not to say I would never traditionally publish again, but self-publishing, I, I really love doing. What's well, the? I I really want to show people this. If you know, if people are wanting to write a book, it's jamesoutoucher.com slash get published for the self-publishing guy. What is it? I I don't even know. You don't remember? Yeah. Well, it's somewhere on the website. Is there a search button? I don't know. Yeah, I think uh, there isn't. I don't even know if there is, but if you just, <laughs> just, if you just Google Alditor and self-publishing, it, you'll it, probably get there. Yeah, it'll come up. I, I mean, I found it by complete accident without even doing that. So. And, and if you can't spell my name, if you Google uh, in quotes, I want to die, I'm usually the second, third, or fourth result. And that's how you can find out my name. <laughs> so <laughs> Out James, of 17 million results. Yeah, James, this has been a fantastic conversation. My final question for you is... If you could teach a course at a university, a course of your creation or otherwise, what would that be? We've talked about many things today. If you uh, were to package it, it into a course, what is it? It would either be like how to how to have how to have ideas, which is sort of like you know a course on creativity, but that seems cliche. So it would be how to have ideas or um, how to learn how to learn. Yeah. So how, how to how to beat the ten thousand hour rule which has basically been like a straitjacket for many people trying to learn things. Absolutely. James Altucher, you're the man. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Jordan. This is great. You're a good interviewer. Thank Thanks. you. Appreciate it. Thanks. We're going to open it up to questions now. Jenaid? You mentioned that you got into a lot of places you shouldn't have with your chess knowledge or your chess expertise. What was one place that you got into, like an example of that? Okay, so uh, I was applying for a job at HBO, which, and I loved HBO. I loved television. This was in the mid 90s. I loved every single show on HBO. Uh, and I, I really like to work at places I love. And uh, I, I had four, one, two, three, I had four interviews when I was at HBO my potential boss, his boss, that guy's boss, and that guy's boss. I blew every single one of those interviews. They were horrible because I didn't even know it was all about computer programming. And after all, 10 years of computer programming and acing every computer science class, I couldn't answer a single question any of these people asked. I didn't know how to do this. I didn't know how to do this. I didn't know how to do this. No, I don't know how to do this. Um, so I just blew it all. And so I remember I walked outside and I thought to myself, well, that was my one chance to move to New York City and you know, make something of myself. And I, I love HBO, but I guess it's just not going to work out. So I went out to Bryant Park and I saw there was a bunch of people playing chess there. And there was um, a guy, Elon Schwartz, who's a, now he's a massive poker champion. And um, uh, he was at the time, he was a strong, very strong chess master. And we started playing chess for $5 a game and blitz chess. Like, you know, you get five minutes aside and, or three minutes aside and you lose if you run out of time. And so we play and I crush him. And I see standing next to the table watching was my potential boss's boss's boss. And so he's like, I never saw anybody beat Elon before. And we started taking a walk around the park, uh, just talking about ideas that HBO should get into, like virtual reality. And there's this new thing, the World Wide Web and uh, all this stuff. And he, call he called me 
uh, a week later and said, um, we'll offer you the job and give you moving costs. And, and it was great. And uh, to this day, Elon's one of uh, who I played then. It's like 25 years later is one of my best friends. And um, uh, and that guy, Rob, the boss, 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 he was a chess player, but not as highly ranked as me. Another One more example. Cornell. I did not have the... I was a C student in high school and I didn't have the grades or the SAT score to get into an Ivy league school. And, um, my interviewer again was a much lower ranked chess player than me. So he was a tournament chess player. So he was interested enough in chess to play in tournaments, to get a rating. And he had just been going, it was set up on his board. He had just been going through a very particular match played in 1972. I of course was very familiar with that match he had some questions about it. I explained what was happening in this position, both from a um, chess perspective and also from uh, what was happening at that time that made this game important. And so here I was, a kid, talking to a much older person uh, in a language where I was. Re- it was like the roles were reversed. I was teaching him. So, of course, my interview went great. And then I became New Jersey junior chess champion. And so... The interview combined with that title, I automatically got into, I probably could have gotten into any college, but I got into, you know, the uh, Cornell. So those were two times. There's probably 50 other times. Two questions. Uh, For both you gentlemen, what's uh, your perspective on the ongoing college admissions scandal? Mm -hmm. Go ahead, James. Uh, Well, I think, I I think it's an awareness on their part that, and I hate to sound, this is not really like a socialist thing. This is more of just an observational thing. But it's an awareness on their part that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. Not not so immediately, but generation by generation. And it's because particularly now with tuition so much higher than inflation would ever have predicted 40 years ago, with tuition so high, these people know that their kids are not going to have all this debt that 22 million other kids have. And so they have a leg up on society, so they think. And again, what hap- tends to happen is people marry people like them. So uh, uh, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. If tuitions keep going up faster, 10 times faster than inflation, that spread gets wider and wider. And income inequality is not good for society. It doesn't mean the CEO has to make the same as the janitor. It means, in general, um, people should have equal opportunities to innovate and create companies and deliver value. And it shouldn't be one whole major portion of society has to pay back debt and the other portion doesn't, because then that ruins our ability to innovate. Jordan? You know, it it doesn't surprise me, everything that happened. However, I will say that I didn't read too much into it, actually. Um, I know my friend Ron Carucci, who, uh, who writes for Harvard Business Review and Forbes, uh, wrote a fantastic, uh, fantastically written article about why the college admission scandal was inevitable. Um, and you can actually find that at, I believe, jordanparis.com slash EP102. Um, that's where the show notes for that episode are, and it's it's actually in there. Um, that article, I'm, it's a I'm really check that out. yeah, it's a really good article. He's he's such a fantastic writer. Okay, so second question for you, Jordan. Sure. Um, you're somewhat anti-education, and sure. you've been so publicly online with a very large following, but yet 
it's my understanding, I just learned tonight that you still attend college. Absolutely. So you're uh, attending an institution that you've identified as broken. What have you uh, recommended to your professors and or the school that can help change your education immediately? Absolutely. Well, actually, I am invited every now and then. It's been happening the last couple of semesters where I actually come in and teach. I actually come in and give a lecture on, uh, like, for example, on, what was it, Tuesday? Uh, yeah, it was Tuesday night. It was Tuesday, and I gave a lecture on pretty much what I do on LinkedIn and how I've gained traction there, how to build a brand, grow your business, and land the job using LinkedIn. I gave a 55-minute lecture there on that, and uh, I've done that a couple of times there at the university now. Um, what else have I done? I mean, that's, that's probably my main contribution um, I have with, with that professor who keeps inviting me back to speak. Um, I have voiced, you know, my opinion and she's listened to my podcast titled why formal education is a huge scam. It's like episode 40 something. Um, and she thought there were very valid points in there. And she actually in her classes now, um, you know, gives many of the students a chance to come up and, uh, and teach and, you know, talk about literally whatever they want. And we were doing, like, when I was originally taking her class, it was intro to marketing, and she, by the end of the semester, we actually, she actually started doing that um, after she listened to that podcast. Now, not a direct result of listening to my podcast, but I guess it won her over time, um, and um, she's, a, she's a great teacher, and I guess we all learn from each other now in, in that class, and, uh, you know, allows me to come in um, even now, still to this day, and teach the lessons that we should have learned in school, but didn't, so... Does that, answer, does that answer your question? Oh, great, great answer. It's, it's good to see that you're doing something. <laughs> so a comment and a question. First, I love the discussion about education. I helped both my kids homeschool themselves. Yeah. One chose not to go to college. One is in college and thinks about being a professor. So, um, and I'm someone who actually loved school. So it's kind of interesting. Loved school, but was really picky about school for them. Didn't send either kid um, Actually, my oldest went to school for two weeks as a preschooler. Didn't work out so well. Um, comment, or that's qu the question, is best advice, James, for somebody, we see a lot of people making money, losing money. Um, best advice for people who have been able to make it and lost it so they don't get stuck, but they can now rebuild in a way that's going to make more sense for them. So they have a base or something? Or? No, no base, but they've made money and lost it. And that's an interesting place for people to come back from. You've got a lot of experience in that. Arena. Yeah, so, so the, the critical thing is building that idea muscle while at the same time, you, you know, so it's, it go, all boils down to you can't, be, you can't have great ideas if you're sick, so you have to take care of yourself physically. You can't have great ideas if you're arguing with your spouse or friends all the time. So you have to make sure you're around good people and you have to be, you have to aggressively trim bad people from your list of your top 10 people that you're around. Uh, uh, so people usually are, don't expect this advice, but this is like the most important thing is if you're not around good people. Like one time I had this astronaut on my podcast, Mike Massimino, and uh, he he couldn't get in. He couldn't get past NASA. He kept failing the the test, and so eventually he ends up uh, getting a PhD at MIT in robotics. And he he said at one point, interesting thing. He said, oh, four out of the ten people in his class all eventually made it into space. And if he was in a 
bar, he would not have been able to say that. So it's really, really important. If you want to go into space, you got to be around the other 10 people who want to go into space. And that's both literal and, you know, an analogy. But um, that's really important. And then writing 10 ideas down, getting really good at strengthening idea muscles. So I started writing ideas down every day. And eventually, some of those ideas got good enough that it attracted people to me when I started sharing them. So six months in or three months into writing ideas down, I wrote, um, uh, uh, I was really into finance and investing then. uh, And I wrote a list of uh, articles one of my favorite writers should write. And I said, here, you should write these articles and I'll subscribe to your stuff. Um, And I didn't want anything in return. And he wrote back to me and surprised me and said, oh, these are great ideas. You should write them. I'll hire you to write them. Uh, literally five years later or four years later, almost to the day, four and a half years later, uh, he bought a company of mine for $10 million. So thank God I sent that list of ideas for him, like I asking for nothing in return. Another list I wrote was to a famous hedge fund manager. And I said, look, I've been programming the markets. I've been playing the markets using this these 10 pieces of software that I wrote. And I know I've studied you. I read your PhD thesis that you wrote in 1962. I know that you're interested in this style that I do. So here's 10 pieces of software that you might be interested in. And I'm happy to just in, install this software in your office for your team. No, no questions asked, nothing. I don't want anything in return. So he directly invited me over for dinner at his place. I was two hours late because I got lost. And uh, uh, he gave me money out of his pocket rather than out of his hedge fund to invest. And that's how I started my hedge fund business, which grew for the next like five years. So just, you know, coming up with ideas, it gives you opportunities. And it also shows you, you can give up on an idea. So I once started a business and I could tell it wasn't working and I even raised money for it, but I just could tell it wasn't working. I wired back everyone's money and boom, cut my losses there. But then I was able to right away start another business that did work. So, you know, because I knew ideas were abundant for me as opposed to like, well, when am I going to have another idea like this again? I know that I, there's always an idea tomorrow that might be better than anything I've ever thought of before. So I never get attached to any one idea. So having that idea muscle fully like built is really important. And then finally, uh, you can't dwell on the things you can't control. So for instance, let's say um, I really want to do this TV show, but um, eventually this network that now I have a deal with rejects it for whatever reason. They they don't like it. They don't like me. They, they, they change CEOs. They reject the idea. A, I, first thing is I have a plan B and a plan C. Like I know what I'm going to do with this idea if they rejected it almost to the point where I hope they reject it because my plan B and plan C are so good. And the other thing is I don't care that much. Like I'll just move on to the next thing. So having a sense that you don't have to control the things you can't, you only do the things you can control. You don't do any of the things you can't and you can't dwell on them. I'm not always great at that, but I, I try. Josh. I have a question for the nerdy guy over there. Uh, <laughs> you're obviously a genius. Hey, before I played chess, I was a semi-professional breakdancer, so I was trying no to like, get out of this nerd <laughs> thing. So I, I, I believe it. Obviously a genius, even though you have a very self-deprecating side, so you have this incredible, uh, fascinating um, persona. 
that is just very intriguing to watch. Uh, there's the self-deprecating uh, um, um, self side, insecure, but a lot of confidence clearly there. So I'm, I'm very intrigued at that mix. But what I'm seeing as a theme here is that you've, you've put yourself in the face of opportunity, right? Isn't that everything you're doing by just lobbing these ideas over and over, casting this wide net to put yourself in the face of as much opportunity as possible. And with that, was there a level of fear that was evident at an early part that you had to work through? Or are you just like, hey, whatever happens, happens? You know, when I started writing these idea lists in mid-2002, and I was dead broke. I had stopped paying the mortgage on my apartment because I couldn't afford it anymore. And so so every every debt collector was circling around. But somehow, once I started writing down these idealists, I felt really like this surge of, like I had been depressed for years about just a steady decline in wealth after I felt like I had won the lottery, so I'm never going to make money again. And uh, but suddenly, when I wrote, I, ideas somehow gave me more sense of abundance than than money did, and I really felt like no matter what happens, things are going to be fine. Just if I keep writing ideas down, and so I just religiously try to stick to that. But uh, uh, but partly it helps too. So if you write lists down every day, like one time I wrote down this list of ten things how Amazon can improve their self publishing department. What happened? I sent to somebody. The, uh, who worked at Amazon. The next thing is Amazon flew me out there to, to look at all of their uh, products that were in the works for self-publishing. They've certainly helped me out a lot then since then when I needed it, when I had special requests on my own books. So it didn't necessarily, it's hard to say it benefited. They didn't pay me or anything, but they've helped me and they're a, a, a good connection for me. I wrote a list of 10 ideas for Google. I got asked to speak at Google, I, uh, I wrote 10 ideas for Airbnb. I spoke at the Airbnb Open. I wrote 10 ideas for LinkedIn, consulted for them for a while, for free. Um, I didn't get paid anything. Um, a lot of places I send to, they don't respond at all. So I just know I'm always gonna, um, and then sometimes I just write these stupid lists, like the one about the Avengers or whatever. So I just always know I could uh, flourish by, you know, focusing my lists on other people and some will respond and some won't. A lot of people come on my podcast because I give them 10 ideas and 10 reasons why it would be good for them to come on my oh, podcast. And, uh, <laughs> I hit up Donald Trump or, or, and Barack Obama, both of them. Or I think of 10 <laughs> other ideas for formats for my podcast, like interviewing is great, but sometimes there's other things you can do. And, um, I don't know. I'm always just trying. And then the other thing is, so, so that was, Part A, which is, I, it's easy for me to throw myself out there because I know I'm going to get rejected most of the time, but I'm going to keep coming up with ideas. The other thing is, if someone, or if you can think of a challenge for yourself in an area you love to learn, you got to take that challenge. So stand-up comedy, like let's say this was like three or four years ago, I wanted, I knew I would get nervous on stage. And everybody, I still do, everybody does. But um, I wanted to fight that. And I also wanted to tighten up the time it takes for people to like me once I'm on stage and for people to laugh once I'm on stage. So here's what I did. I went on the subway and I had someone videotape me and I was scared to death, but I was going to do stand up on each car in the subway. So every stop, I was going to leave the car and go into the next car. And I did that um, from like 
42nd Street down to Brooklyn. And um, and it was hard because no one's, not, they're not there to laugh on a subway. They're there to hate me on a subway, and which is what most of them did. And most of my jokes were bad. And, but I just did it because, and I still occasionally do things like that. Not exactly that, but like that, just to kind of keep exercising that muscle. Or if I'm on a lineup and I have a choice, I can either go before the best comedian in the world, whoever that might be, or after one of the best comedians in the world. I'll always choose after because that's the most difficult spot possible. Um, and I'm not going to waste 10,000 hours of my life trying to get good. I'm going to skip the line as much as possible. The only way to skip the line is to take every single challenge as it comes up. So you have to fling yourself into opportunity to, to get better. Assuming failure each time, though. Mm. Thank you. Mom. <laughs> so you talk about your ideas and you give them away. Aren't there ideas that you just want to keep for yourself because you're protective of them and you want them and you don't want to share? It's a good no, question. Yeah, it is a good question. I get asked that a lot. And the answer is no. Uh, like, I, I don't mind giving away any of my ideas because... If anyone, if I'm really good at this idea that I love, then it shouldn't matter that someone competes with me. Like I will destroy them. If they do compete with me successfully, then it probably wasn't a good idea for me anyway, and I never would have succeeded at it. So giving away my ideas is a faster way for me to learn if this is if I'm if, if, for me to cut the cord on this idea. If I'm going to fail at it or not be as good as someone else at it, like if I, like I'll, like one time I had this idea. And I started doing it. This was the business I sold to the street.com for, for 10 million. It was called Stock Picker. Halfway through developing it, I suddenly realized I had four major competitors doing the exact same thing. And at first I was scared. And then I was like, I looked at them and all, and I realized, oh no, these are they're just doing it because they think it's like a hot idea. I actually had real passion for the idea and I knew what I was doing. And I I destroyed them all. Uh, another time I had an idea where I cut the cord because there was competitors and I see I didn't really have the passion. They did. It's not good. Um, I'll tell you the idea for the TV show I'm working on. You could go, anybody in this room can steal it. And everyone, <laughs> probably, probably some of you in the room have the skills to, to steal it. So the idea is called, I, I will make you a millionaire. And I take six random people off the street and I give them, you know, I interview them and follow them for a little while. And then I give them highly personalized strategies so that they could make a million dollars within six months and uh they have to follow the advice exactly or they get cut out and uh uh so that's the idea go ahead and and steal it nobody i i know nobody will do this or i think nobody will do this as, as well as me but certainly everybody could try it but uh i know i've I, I know i'm good at this sort of thing because i will give them tons of ideas and will and i know how to value ideas and we'll settle on the right ones and i i've been studying for decades how to quickly make money because i've always wanted shortcuts and uh uh so that's that you go ahead steal my tv show hasn't it won't it won't be even if it, everything works out it won't be on the air for a year so you have plenty of time to make it a youtube series whatever you want to do fantastic well i think uh i think that's a wrap all right yeah. well thanks so much everybody for coming and thanks jordan for having me on here Thanks for coming to the club too, because this is. Uh, I love this place. I don't like to move very far, uh -huh. so this is. Uh, Big thank you to Stand Up New York, and of course James for for hosting. Yeah, thanks. There you have it, my friends. This has been another episode 
of the Growth Mindset University podcast. Now, if you enjoyed this one today, there are a couple of ways that you can give back. The first is, of course, to leave an honest rating and review in Apple Podcasts or iTunes. You can also take a screenshot of this and share it out on your Instagram story and tag me at J underscore Paris underscore and tag our guest as well. And we will absolutely give you some love. And then, of course, if you want to start your own podcast, a podcast like this or any other podcast that you envision, you can go to jordanparis.com slash pu to get free access to Podcast University. All right. I love you all so very much. And until next time, my friends, make every day count, live to learn, and grow to give.